Good morning, gentlemen. The combination of a little World Series baseball and a delay and a little rain this morning, right? We start to uh, make the decision, man, am I going to go tomorrow? Am I going to get out of this bed? Well, I appreciate you being here, and uh, I think the Lord has something great in store for us. So let me just say real quickly, again, introduce myself. My name is Blake Holmes, and I get to lead the equipping ministry here. And I want to welcome all of you. I realize that some of us um, are coming in probably even for the very first time uh, this week. We always welcome folks to come in. And uh, some of us have, this is our first summit, and others, we've we've been doing this for for 15 years, and you've been coming. And uh, I want to just tell you that no matter where you are, In your pursuit of the Lord, we want to be an encouragement to you and a help to you. And as you have questions, as you have doubts or uh, wrestling with things, know that this is a safe place to come and ask those questions and pursue the Lord together. So we don't pretend to have it all together, but uh, we do proclaim that we serve a a good God who loves us, who knows our needs, who cares about us, and and we know that we need each other. And so I I realize uh, that... Coming in a little early, waking up early, coming in a little early, and then meeting with a bunch of men and hearing a bunch of dudes sing at 6.20 in the morning uh, feels a little awkward. And, uh, and let me tell you why we do that, right? It's not to hear great voices, trust me, all right? Uh, you don't sound great. You sound groggy often. I sound groggy often in the morning. JP sounds good, but that's about it, right? And... Uh, But let me tell you why we do that. The reason why we sing really is, one, to remind ourselves of what's true. That's why we do that. Uh, There's something great about music that when you sing and when you hear lyrics, truth put to music, it it sticks in your head. That's why you remember songs much faster than you remember Bible verses. Amen? And uh, it's because you remember those truths when when it's put to music. And so it reminds you of some biblical truth, and, and what a great way to start the morning just to remind yourself of, hey, this is what's true. Um, and then secondly, it, it's a time of proclamation. It's a time to say, hey, this is, this is what I am all about. This is what I'm dedicating myself to. This is what I believe. I proclaim this to be true. By faith, this is what I believe, right? And uh, what we sang this morning, uh, those words and everybody needs compassion. Amen, Freddie? Amen. Amen. I always love Freddie's right here. I can just always look at him if I'm a little insecure about what I'm saying. Freddie, what do you think? Amen. Right? No, but, but even just the, what we proclaim was we look at, at the, just the, uh, the truth that's said in, in the song. We proclaim that. And then finally, it's a time of solidarity. You know, many of you guys are going to go into the workplace today. Some of you are going to go to... Uh, from your small group, head out to DFW and catch a plane and take off somewhere. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I need often to be reminded that I'm not alone in this. That there are other men who are purposing uh, to live their lives according to God's will and his purposes to advance his kingdom. And I imagine that's probably true for many of you as well. And so today, as, as you come to a point, um, a crossroads, Right in decisions you have to make at work or in the family um, or amongst friends. I, I hope that you remember early in the morning 
standing with some other men, remind yourself of, hey, I, I'm not in this alone. There's others who are, who are uh, intentionally seeking God and um, attempting to do his will. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. So we don't, we don't gather in here just to sing, just to kind of fill time. Right? We gather in here as an act of worship to remind ourselves of what's true, to proclaim what's true, and as an act of solidarity to remind ourselves that, hey, we're not in this alone, but there's other men who want to pursue the Lord with us. So <clears throat> having said that, make a hard left here, a little transition. Um, it wasn't long ago that I was introduced to Pokemon Go. Anybody know what that is? Okay. All right, now let's just all be friends, all right? I'm going to make fun of you, but let's go ahead and let's just be friends. How many of you as grown men are playing Pokemon Go? Come on, raise your hand. There we go. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. There's some honest folks out there, all right? All right, so what in the world is Pokemon Go? Well, I had no idea. I had no idea. But all of a sudden, I would go to different public places, and I was seeing people literally running, running with their phones to what I now have learned are gyms, okay? And so you go and um, you, you, I think you battle or what, I don't know what the exact word is, but you try to win the gym, okay? And so there's apparently uh, gyms set up all over. I mean, one's even in Central Park. Did y'all, anybody see the pictures in Central Park of literally dozens of people running to the spot so they could control this gym? And um, I have one by my house in a park where I've seen a bunch of kids gather. And then, lo and behold, there's one right outside Watermark, okay? Um, as I understand it, right by the, the pond. And so a bunch of folks were coming to our campus to, to fight in this gym. Um, it, it is crazy because it's, it's like a whole nother reality that so many people um, see and are participating in or are aware of, and then there's others of us <clears throat> who are going throughout our day completely unaware, completely blind to the reality of what other people are experiencing. And um, <clears throat> as I was thinking about what I want to share with you uh, this morning, I thought, you know what? That is true also in the spiritual life. <laughs> There's a reality that Scripture speaks of that we're going to see in Mark 14. There is a uh, reality of, of what spiritually is happening all around us every day of which some of us are very aware and others of us are completely blind to and ignorant of. And that's where I really want to focus our time uh, this morning. Turn to uh, Mark 14. You know that um, <clears throat> I've said this several times, that, that Mark's distinct from the other Gospels, just to set the context. It's distinct from the other Gospels. That the whole point that Mark's trying to make here is that, is that Jesus is um, <clears throat> the suffering servant. Uh, this, this book emphasizes the dramatic. It's quick. It's action-packed. Um, it shows Jesus as uh, completely in control and sovereign. And whatever he says comes about immediately. That's because of his um, uh, sovereign power. But yet, he doesn't use his sovereignty to manipulate or for selfish motives. 
He doesn't use this power to lord it over others, but he preaches an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that's radically different from ours in its values and what it proclaims. And he is a king who is good. And he is a king who seeks the best interests of those who follow him. And so um, Mark is going to paint the picture to a Roman audience, and the Romans respected power, of who Jesus is as a suffering servant. And in chapter 14 specifically, we're starting to move to the latter portion of Jesus' life. And this is where Mark proportionally spends the most of his time in the book, is in the Passion Week. Um, it, it's, it's as if he is like, hey, there's a lot of details. I'm going to shorten all of these so then I can get to the end of the story so I can tell you about Jesus' mission and what he accomplished and what was most important um, in his life, in his uh, death, his crucifixion, and burial and resurrection. And so this is the section of, of Jesus' life where he is uh, rejected, he's a, betrayed, and arrested. And in, specifically in chapter 14, it's broken up into four scenes. As you just read through this chapter, um, if you're not careful, you'll read it and you'll kind of think to yourself, this is familiar, I've read this, I've heard this before, and, and you lose the implication and the meaning. And so, but if you slow down, I'm not going to be able to walk through the whole chapter in our 15 minutes together, but I do want to give you some insight before I, I focus on this last little section. The first section, or first scene rather, is in Simon's house in verses 1 through 11. Then we move to the upper room in 12 through 25. Then Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. And then on the Mount of Olives, just down from there, um, right before you enter into Jerusalem, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time looking. But in your groups, it, it it would be uh, good for you to spend some time looking at each of these scenes. Let me just point out some of the things that I think might be helpful for you to discuss, and I hope that you noticed along the way. Number one, just in Simon's house, it's worth noting the contrast between Mary's sacrificial devotion with Judah's selfish ambition. You know, I've told you all along that the Gospels are a mosaic of all the events of Jesus' life put together in such a way as to make an argument so that you would come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he accomplished what he said he would, was going to accomplish. The goal of the, the gospel writers is not to write a chronological account. Okay, They want to be factual. That's not, I'm not implying that it's not factual. But he's putting stories together to paint a portrait so that you would understand Jesus, who he is. Mark, hey, he's a suffering servant. Right? Matthew, he's a teacher. It's arranged around five sermons. Luke, he's the perfect son of man. John, he's the savior of the world. Here are seven signs and seven I am statements as to who Jesus is so that you would come to believe he's the savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, when you, the reason why I say that is because here this story is in a different spot where Mary, specifically, the woman's not identified in Mark, but it's Mary, as we know from the book of John, this section is in a, a different chronological spot than in other places, in other Gospels. And, and I think the reason is, is to do just what I'm pointing out, to contrast Mary's sacrificial devotion with Judas's selfish ambition, greed, and betrayal. 
And it's pointing out, hey, there, there's a war going on. And you've got to decide, just as they decided, who is Jesus? And will you follow him? And you see, Judas has in his mind that Jesus is going to be this certain kind of king. And when he realizes that Jesus isn't going to fulfill his expectations, he starts to think, hey, I'm going to get out while the getting's good. And so he betrays Jesus. And so it's just worth noting the contrast between these two characters. We see Mary in the famous story of Mary and Martha, right? We see Mary here. So um, it just caused me to ask, hey, when, when has my devotion to the Lord ever been so sacrificial that others thought I was irresponsible? Because <laughs> you notice her devotion and her sacrifice is, is costly, and others become indignant and look at her like, that is foolish. That's silly. That's ridiculous. Why are you doing that? So I ask you, are you more like Mary or are you more like Judas? Are you more like Mary in your devotion that others would look at you and go, man, that seems a little extreme. Are you more like Judas and like, hey, Jesus, I will follow you so long as you fulfill my expectation of what God is supposed to be like and what he's supposed to do on my terms. You get to the next little section here in the upper room, and Keller does a great job. I hope you all are reading that book, um, Jesus the King. It's just a great book and commentary, I think, of just insights as we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. But in the upper room, um, we see the connection between the Passover event in Exodus chapter 12 and the crucifixion of Jesus, such that Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, is going to say, hey, very explicitly, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so just as in Exodus, when the Jews were in bondage and slavery and captivity, a sacrifice was made, blood was spilt, and those who put the blood on the door and trusted in the blood when the death angel passed over. Just as they were freed from slavery and delivered so that they could enter into the promised land, so too. Those of us who trust in the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, in Christ's sacrifice... And what he's done for us, we are freed from bondage, sin, and slavery, and death. So that we can enter into an abundant life and experience eternal life. And so the connection here is great. The, the timing of events, gang, Jesus didn't just die at a random point in time. But we see that all these events are culminating with the Jewish calendar, with Passover. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. So it's worth making the connection between the Passover event in Exodus 12 and the crucifixion of Christ. The next scene is the Mount of Olives in 26 through 31. And I've stood on that mount. And when you stand there, uh, this is what you'd see. I know the picture is not real close, okay? But you're overlooking Jerusalem, and right there in the very foreground right there that you see is, is a burial site, okay? And, and then you see the dome on the rock, which is um, a Muslim holy site, that, that gold dome right there. But, but this is 
looking in um, to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And, and Jesus, what is worth noting here in this time where it looks like evil is triumphing, what I want you to notice is Jesus' complete awareness of what is happening around him and his insight into the hearts of men. You would think when, from the world's perspective, hey, the bottom is falling out. Where, where is Jesus in his sovereignty and his control? Like, don't you know better? And it's like the author makes it clear, Jesus is perfectly aware of what is happening around him. God remains on his throne. And you need to know that when you read about evil in the newspaper, and when you experience tragedy and suffering, you need to know that God remains firmly on his throne. We do not serve a God who is caught off guard. We do not serve a God who's surprised by pain. We do not serve a God who's thinking, oh man, I never saw that coming. But one who is completely sovereign over evil. Just worth noting, verses 7 through 8, just backing up in this chapter, Jesus speaks of the time that, hey, listen, I know what's coming. I know that I'm going to be buried. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. Verse 13, he talks about what is going to happen in the upper room. Remember, he sends his disciples ahead. And he goes, hey, man, you're going to see this man. He's going to have jugs of water. I mean, it's like, I I've got this. <laughs> I know what's about to happen. None of this is catching me off guard. In fact, I've ordered these events in such a way that you're not going to be surprised. I'm telling you what's going to happen. In verse 18, he flat out looks at Judas and he's like, hey, man, it's you. I know what you're, I know what you're plotting. Like there's nothing here that takes me by surprise, Judas. I know what you're up to. Now go, do what you said you're going to do. Even in verse 27, in this particular portion of Scripture, we see Peter's denials and, and, and Jesus warns him. And he goes, hey, Peter, I know what's coming. This is about to be what's going to happen. Just when you hear that rooster crow. And then if you even jump ahead in the chapter, verse 41, he talks about the hour that is to come. Fully aware that, of what awaits for him. The whole point here, gang, is that no one took Jesus' life from him, but that he laid it down but that he willingly laid it down. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. Finally, we get to our last scene, and that's 32 through 52, where I want to spend the remainder of our time. And that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's just down from the Mount of Olives. It takes two minutes to walk there. It, it is amazing uh, the, the scene there, even today, and you will see trees like this in the garden. It's like the trees themselves tell the story. <laughs> these, these trees that have been there for centuries and their uh, deformity and their size and the way they look, it's like they tell a story of agony, of, hey, this is where it went down. And you can go there. And, um, 
And I think they, they tell a story of a, of a battle that has occurred. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the battle between our spirit and flesh and the challenge for us to stay awake. Because it, it's here, as you know, looking uh, beginning at verse 32, when they're in Gethsemane, it says that he says to his disciples, hey, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter, James, and John, those three who have been invited to see the, Jesus, tra- Jesus being transfigured, to see miracles that others weren't able to see. These three who've been invited in, the kind of the inner circle of Jesus, and begins, uh, and it says, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And we know the story. We know the story where Jesus says, hey, pray with me, watch with me. This is about to happen. And yet he comes back and the disciples are asleep. And he wakes them up. And and this happens not once, not twice, but three times. They're exhausted. And and it's a physical sign of of a spiritual reality of what's happening all around them. And and you, you see even Jesus pleading with Peter. He says, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And he goes on, verse 38, says, um, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And gang, the point I want to make here is that we too are at war. War in a war. We are in a war. And in the same way as I started out with the silly Pokemon illustration, many of us were asleep, completely unaware, never even thinking about the spiritual battle that is occurring all around us every day. 2 Corinthians 4.4 makes the case that the God of this world, which is Satan, is actively blinding the hearts of men every day that they would not come to know who Jesus is. That is what our enemy actively does every single day, is to blind the hearts and minds of men so they would not come to know the truth of who Jesus is and recognize him as king. That's what he does every day. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks that we are at war, and it's not against flesh and blood, so to speak, but against um, this present darkness, this dark spiritual powers that war against us. Ephesians 6 speaks of this reality. The war is real, just as it was then, so it is now. But many of us go about our day with no awareness. C.S. Lewis in his um, classic book, Screwtape Letters, if you're familiar with it, um, I hope all of you are familiar with it, but what he does is he, he, he pictures this spiritual battle which Scripture speaks of. And there's one demon mentor speaking through to his mentee, talking about how the mentee can undermine, tempt, right, discourage uh, his subject who happens to be a, a believer. And, um, and so he, it's a good picture of, hey, this is what Satan's schemes look like. This is what you should do, mentee, in order to discourage 
and tempt and, uh, and cause your Christian subject to fall. And I love this in, in his book. He makes this point. He writes this, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, that's you and me, in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by high command. High command here is uh, Satan. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. <laughs> it's perceptive. Because when we think of the reality, the spiritual world around us, our mind goes to what? A little devil with a pitch to- pitchfork and red tights. And you're kind of like, that's absurd. That's just ridiculous. And when we think of angels, we think of precious moments. These little chubby babies, right, with wings and harps. And you're like, that's absurd. So let me just tell you, the Bible speaks of the reality of an enemy that we are at war with. The war is real. But he's not a little comic figure in red tights in a pitchfork. And nor are the angels chubby babies with wings and harps. And as long as our enemy can cause us to believe that Satan is this mythical comic figure, we're never going to buy it, and we're never going to really realize that we're at war. It was just this week, man, that I woke up in preparing for this talk. I woke up a little early, and and I thought, oh, I'm tired. (laughs) I just want to sleep more. And so um, I was laying there in bed, and I thought about this very message and the truths of which I'm trying to communicate to you. And I thought to myself, hey, if I really, really believe that we're at war, i got to get my tail out of bed. I mean, if I really believe I have an enemy who wants to discourage me, tempt me, deceive me, ruin, steal from me, wreck my marriage, steal the hearts of my kids, then I got to get my tail out of bed. If he wants to discourage the men I'm in community with, if he wants to undermine the ministry of this church, if he wants to steal and rob your joy, I've got to get out of bed. And I've got to pray. I've got to pray for my heart, for my mind. I got to pray for my kids, my wife, my marriage. Because I can't do this alone. And I need God's help. But see, if I don't really believe we're at war, hit the snooze button and go to sleep. Right? Hit the snooze button and go to sleep. You know, as a dad, what I do every night, I'm the one who does the dad duties, right? Other than take out the trash every day, I'm the one who, what, locks the doors, goes around the house. It's not my kids are going to lock the doors. They're completely oblivious, right? Homework, bed, and, you know, I don't even know if they feed the dog. And I imagine that same, same thing's true for you. Is that you're probably the one who locks the doors, turns on the alarm, or does whatever. Locks up the house. But why do we do that 
because we know there's a potential threat of a physical enemy who would come and maybe take something from us. But then spiritually, we don't pray for our families. We don't instruct our kids. We find reasons to go play five hours of golf on a Saturday. Golf's great. But man, we're working on our golf game. And I'm just telling you, we need to work on our prayers and going before the Lord and realizing, hey, we're at war and we need help. Second point, our battle is against Satan, 1 Peter 5.8. Just write it down. It says that Satan um, is our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. You were naive and unbiblical if you do not think you do not have an enemy who is real and wants to destroy you. And he's not in red tights. We're in a battle against Satan. We're in battle against the world. And what in the world is the world? Are we talking about like earth? <laughs> well, the Bible, when it speaks of the world, it's talking about a system of beliefs and values that are in opposition to the kingdom of God. And it's in every area of life. So remember 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that I read to you, the God of this world? That God of this world, Satan, Satan in Hebrew, which just means adversary, Okay, our adversary, this is his world at the moment. And he has a, a system of beliefs and values that are in opposition to the will and the word of God. And it permeates everything in our world, from business to politics to education to government, you name it. And so we have to be alert and aware of the schemes of the devil, the world, and finally our flesh, which Paul says in Galatians 5, we've got to war against. So what is our flesh? It's not necessarily my left arm right here. Okay, The flesh is speaking of my natural, depraved desires, that when left to myself, although I have been declared righteous, I, although God is making me more and more like his son, I still need him every day because I am not finished yet. And so I have to go to war against my flesh, my inward natural desires that are opposed to the will of God. But the good news is, just write down Ephesians 6, is we're not defenseless. And it's here that Paul, in speaking of this war, in the battle we're in, he says, hey, we're not defenseless, but God has actually given us armor. Armor to fight the evil one. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, sword of the spirit, belt, belt of truth. Right? He goes on. And so it's worth spending time just to think of, about, hey, if the war is real and we are in a, in a battle against Satan, the world, and our flesh, what are we to do? How are we to respond so that we won't remain asleep, Peter, and unaware of what's happening around us? And we won't be defenseless. And finally, it's worth noting, according to Colossians 2.15, hey, the war is won precisely because of what happened right here in this garden. Because Jesus was willing to drink of the cup and pay the price that you and I couldn't pay. 
He not only died a physical death gang, but he drank the wrath of God. It wasn't, as Keller so rightly pointed out, it wasn't just the agony of pain and physical suffering, but it was being separated from the Father. When the Father turned his back on the Son and unleashed his wrath on Christ because of our sin and our rebellion, he paid that price, that penalty, so that we wouldn't have to. And we could have life. So in your groups, I would encourage you to ask, do you believe you're at war? I mean, do you really believe it? Do you really believe that? Or do you believe it's like Pokemon, right? It's just a game. It's just made up. If you really believe you're at war, I think it's going to change how you live your day. It's going to change your devotion. It's going to change your prayer life. It's going to change the way you parent. It's going to change the way you view your marriage. Your wife's not your enemy, gang. She's not your enemy. Are you fully awake? I mean, are you awake? You alert? You recognize your enemy wants to destroy your marriage, your witness, your community, your understanding of God's truth? He wants to discourage you? Are you asleep? Just focused on the next deal, your kid's soccer game, the baseball game? <laughs> or some of you, are you actively rebelling? Some of you stiff-arming the community that God's put around you, and you're like, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. Third, how are you most vulnerable to Satan's schemes? Where are you vulnerable? We had an exercise at seminary one day where we were asked to write our own screw tape letter. Like, what do you think if there is a demon, if you will, assigned to discourage you what would be his strategy and what would he write if he were to discourage you? And what are you doing to defend yourself? I read one man's screw tape letter. This is not C.S. Lewis, but this is what one man said on the Desiring God website and doing the same exercise. This is what he said about himself. Hey, if the devil is to take me out, this is the way I think the counsel would be to him. He said, hey, persuade him that the ordinary Christian life in the radical Christian life are mutually exclusive and that he needs to choose a side. Convince him that ordinary is boring and that radical is excessive. Convince him that being ordinary is beneath him and then convince him that being passionate is amateurish. Thus, leave him slightly bewildered and vacillating. In the end, convince him that he needs to act like and look like the world in order to fit in with the world and win the world. Obscure from him the truth that a radically ordinary life is a great threat to our purpose and mission. And gang, I just want to encourage you. The war is real. You have an enemy. He wants to rob you of your joy. He wants to, he wants to undermine your understanding of God's word. He wants to create doubt in who you think God is. He wants you to believe that God's really not as good as he says he is. He wants you to believe that God's really not as sovereign as he says he is. And he can't be trusted. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. But God doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. 
He gives us each other. But we can't just mindlessly go to Summit because it's another Thursday and check the box. We've got to avail ourselves to what God's given to us to be alert and fight. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you for awakening our dead hearts that we could see the reality of, of what's happened around us, that you've made a way for us to be made right with you, to be reconciled through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. I pray, Father, that your spirit this morning would awaken our hearts, that we'd avail ourselves to the truth of your word, to the blessing of friendships and community around us, that we would yield to your spirit today, that we would not carry out the desires of our flesh, but that, Father, we would um, walk in step with your spirit. Thank you for your kindness and your grace for the times, Lord, when we're asleep, you lovingly embrace us. You extend forgiveness. And you allow us, Lord, um, to wake, have a new day where your mercies are new. So, Lord, help us today to walk in a way as if we believe the war is real, to be attentive and not fall asleep and to be a blessing to those around us, that they could come to know you as well. In Christ's name, amen.